that chapter, for it's a book of one chapter. We want to introduce the epistle tonight with a slightly different emphasis, namely a narrative study seeking to understand who Jude is. So we'll begin with the title of the book in the King James Version, and I can always call on Lisa to read me the title of a book in the King James Version. Not tonight. She didn't bring her authorized version. It's the New King James. Well, let's see what the New King James says. I didn't check that one. Just the epistle of Jude. Okay. Does anybody happen to have a King James? Ah, Nancy. Could you read the title? Could you read the title for us? The general general epistle of Jude. Now, why that title? Do you know, Nancy? Why is it called the general epistle? But it is an, it's in a letter because an epistle is a letter, right? Oh, yes. Okay. So why is it a general letter? Oh, it's not to a specific church. Very good. It is not to a particular church or to a particular person. And how many of these general epistles are there in the New Testament? There are eight. You won't take time to count them up. Christina, did you get a handout? You need a handout. You need a scorecard. All right. The general epistle of Jude, because it's written to the church in general, not to any particular church or any individual. Now, these kinds of epistles stand in contrast to what other epistles? Okay. Yeah. what What are they? Who's the author of those? The Pauline epistles, right. How many Pauline epistles are there? There are 13. 13 epistles of Paul to particular individuals or particular churches. Epistle to Timothy and epistle to the Colossian church. Now, some might challenge the fact that the general epistles are always to the church in general because 2nd and 3rd John actually do specify some individuals. For instance, 2nd John specifies the elect lady. She's unidentified by name. But 3rd John is uh, written to Gaius, to a person that uh, was known to the apostle. We don't know anything more about him than that. But nonetheless, it could be arguable that we actually have 15 particular epistles and only six general epistles. All right, now there's another name for these general epistles, a, uh, a term which also encapsulates them, sums them up. Does anyone happen to know what that other name is? General or? Well, letters. They are letters, but all epistles are letters. So I'm using them for general. Catholic epistles, okay? Now, what does it mean, David, Catholic epistles? Are these Roman Catholic epistles? No, the church as a whole. The church as a whole. It means the church universal. Catholic with a small C, not Catholic with a capital C. 
from the Greek word katholikos, which means universal. So we get this nomenclature that we're dealing with a general epistle, not to any particular congregation, although there is a particular congregation to whom he is writing. It's not identified. We don't know who they are. We'll talk a little bit later about provenance. That is, we'll ask some questions from within the text as to what it may indicate about where they lived. <clears throat> These are all speculations on our part, but nonetheless, it's worth, think- worth thinking about that kind of question. Or Catholic epistles, meaning that this epistle addresses the church universally. Now, Jude is the title of this epistle in English. What would his name be in Greek? We'll ask our Greek professor. Our Greek professor is... I would say, well, I'm thinking of Judas here. Yes, it's Judas. In Greek, it would be Judas. What would his name be in Hebrew? I'll ask our Hebrew professor. Judah. Judah. Very good. All right, so our English word is a translation of Greek and Hebrew names. Now, when we think of the name Judah, for instance, if he's a Hebrew child, he would have been called Judah as he was growing up. We think of that Hebrew name, what does it suggest? What does the name Judah suggest to us? A tribe or a patriarch, all right? So... We can think of the patriarch Judah, who is the son of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So we'd have patriarchal lineage, okay? Any other lineage that might be in that name Judah? Who's the great son of Judah in the Old Testament? Ben Hur. <laughs> That's not an Old Testament figure. I know you love that movie, dear, but. <laughs> David. David, yes. So it would be royal lineage as well as patriarchal lineage. And there's another lineage here. It's actually more political, not biblical, but intertestamental. Okay? No, not a country. A person. George Friedrich Handel writes an oratorio. You actually know the chorus from this oratorio. Judas Maccabeus, correct. Judas the Hammer. Okay? So, this name is very common in the first century, in the Christian era. It's common because it's the name of a Jewish patriarch, it's the name of a famous Jewish king, and it's the name of a famous Jewish political deliverer, namely Judas Maccabeus. Well, then how many Judases are there in the New Testament? There are, in fact, eight of them. And so we need to sort out which one our author is. Well, we may begin with the negative. We know which one he is not right away, do we not? He is not Judas Iscariot. How how do we know that? He is dead, yes. How did he die? He committed suicide. All right, so Judas Iscariot is not in the picture here. He's definitely not the author of this epistle. 
Well, is he the Judas not Iscariot? Now, there is a disciple called Judas not Iscariot in John 14. Most scholars believe that he is equal to the person identified by Matthew as Thaddeus and Luke as Judas, the son of James. So is our Judas that Judas? And if he is not, how do you know he's not? What do you vote? Yes or no? Is he Judas not Iscariot? Is he Judas, son of James? Uh, James who? No, James. Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? But let's let's start with a question. Is he Judas not Iscariot? Is he Judas, son of James? We'll leave Thaddeus to the same. David, you are saying, the counselor is saying, no. How do you know? You're right. But how do you know you're right? I uh, could be guessing, but I'm presuming that... Uh, the title of the book would not be Jude if, in fact, in everyday life, people referred to him as Judas. Actually, in Greek, it would be called Judas. The title would be Judas. In fact, it is in the New Testament, uh, in the Greek New Testament. Now, the answer is in the first verse of Jude 1. Somebody was speaking it. Brother. The brother of James, not the son of James. So Judas, not Iscariot, won't qualify because he's the son of James, not the brother of James. All right, so our Judas here identifies himself in terms of a fraternal relationship, uh, not in terms of a paternal relationship. All right, now this James in verse 1, is this James the son of Zebedee? No, how do you know? Because any time he refers to an apostle, he refers to him very differently. Okay, uh, we, that that can work. But who is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of? He was uh, brother of, uh, uh, well, he's brother of half brother of Jesus. Not this James. Peter. <clears throat> Not Peter. John, he's the brother of John. Okay, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of thunder. Okay, so we know that this is not James, son of Zebedee, because he wouldn't identify himself as the brother of James. The brother would be brother of John. Now, what happened to James, the son of Zebedee? All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 12. And the first person that has it, read verse 2 for us. Just read it out when you find it. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Who had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword? Look back in verse 1, okay, and tell us who did this. King Herod. King Herod who? Is this Herod the Great? No, I might have written down the grandson of King Herod. Grandson. What's his name? He's not Herod the Great, he's Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa. So he can't be confused with the other murderer, namely Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a murderer, not only of the babes of Bethlehem, but also of his wives. He was a butcher. But this Herod, a butcher and likewise, but not quite as bad as his father, 
uh, nonetheless, he executes James, the son of Zebedee. Now, we can actually date this event to 44 A.D. We know when it happened precisely to the year, 44 A.D., plus or minus 10 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this James is also known as James the Greater. James the Greater. Well, let's look at another James. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. So once again, when you have found the verse, just go ahead and read it out for all of us. James 1, 19. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Okay, so here we have James, the brother of our Lord. Now, you'll also notice he's referred to that to, referred to in the same way in chapter 2, verse 9 of Galatians, and he is listed in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and Matthew 13, verse 55. Now, this James, the brother of our Lord, also appears in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. Now, let's take a look at that verse. Because the setting of that verse is important. Actually, all of you should know automatically what the setting of Acts chapter 15 is. What is the setting, Ben? That ought to be a no-brainer for you. Bob? The reason I asked Bob and Ben is they're ordained ruling elders. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> why is that passage important to ordained ruling elders in a Presbyterian church? <clears throat> because it's telling the story of what? What's going on in Acts 15? Ben? The first synod. Uh, I'll accept first synod. It's first general assembly. All right. It's, of course, not called that in the text. It's called Council of Jerusalem. And what's James' role there? What's he doing at this council, at this general assembly? He's the moderator. He is the moderator. That's exactly right. He is the convener. He is the one who orders the business. And he's delivering a speech in his role here in that 13th verse, which we uh, featured. All right. So, James... The brother of Christ is the leader of the Council of Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he convenes and moderates what we in the Presbyterian tradition call the First General Assembly or the First Synod. Now, what happened to him? Now, you notice in parenthesis, I've placed the name Josephus. Who can tell me something about Josephus? I, I didn't hear it clearly. Historian. He is a historian. <clears throat> from what era, Bob? You're right. He is a historian. Uh, I should ask you, from what nationality? He is a historian of what nation? Jewish. He is a Jewish historian. Correct. Of what era? Uh, he was born in what, 37 AD? Yes. He is a contemporary of... The first century apostles, okay? Who does he serve in his capacity as historian? He served Rome. 
He is actually providing information on the history of the Jews for the sake of the Roman rulers of Judea. All right, now, Josephus is, in fact, a very important Jewish historian. His corpus is fairly extensive. It has been uh, been critically translated, I mean, translated in a very accurate and faithful way. So, we have no difficulty accessing uh, his record, and he has a record of the death of James, the brother of our Lord. This is the only record we have of James's death, his execution. He was stoned to death in 62 AD. Josephus records the name of the person who had him stoned to death. That man's name was Ananus, who was the high priest in Jerusalem in that year. So, James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned by the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem in 62 AD. The enmity of the synagogue against the church uh, continues through that first century. Now, recently, in fact, in the 1990s, the bone box or the ossuary of James, brother of Jesus, was supposedly discovered. And you have a picture in your handouts of that bone box. And if you'll turn to that picture, we'll talk a little bit about ossuaries. The first picture is simply the box as you would see it in its entirety. Second picture is the Hebrew inscription which has been uh, scribbled or chiseled into the side of the box. All right, let's deal with the box itself. What is an ossuary? It's a bone box. What what bones? Bones of a dead. The bones of a dead person. All right. So what they would do is after the body had corroded enough that the bones were revealed, they would gather up the bones and put them in a box and inter the box or place the box in a cavern tomb. This box allegedly was the bone box of James, the brother of Jesus. How do we know? Now you turn to the second part of that handout, and what has been scribbled into the side in Hebrew is Yaakov bar Yesuf akui de Yeshua. And as you can see, as it's translated, Jacob, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, of course, this is a significant discovery if it is authentic. When it was first discovered, the person who found it, this is a private collector in Israel, a private collector thought nothing of it. But someone who did know ancient Hebrew and did know the significance of what was scribbled into the side of it, said that this could be more important than it appears. And so that individual began to display it. And when he began to display it, lo and behold, the Israel Archaeological Antiquity Department wanted to seize it from him. And for 10 years, there was a legal battle over the ownership of this bone box. Now, the focus of that legal battle for the first 10 years was to determine whether or not the box was authentic and the inscription was genuine. 
the Israeli Antiquities Authority decided that it was a forgery. And after 10 years, finally, a year ago, in a Jewish court, they succeeded in getting a ruling that this box and the inscription were a fraud. But last month, that same Israeli Archaeological Antiquities Department, Antiquities Authority, I should say, went back to court in order to seize possession of this box, which they once said was a forgery. Now, this is an extremely interesting case, okay? And those of you who read the Biblical Archaeology Review, edited by Herschel Shanks in Washington, D.C., would know a little bit about this. Uh, It's a little difficult to read the Biblical Archaeological Review unless you subscribe to it, because even online you can't see the current issues, but you can see some older articles. In any event, this this about-face on the part of the Israeli Antiquities Authority is based upon the fact that since they believe the box is old, whether it's authentic to the first century A.D. or not, but since they believe the box is old, they are claiming that the Israeli state owns the box. It owns the stones. Because the stones were found in Israel, then they're going to take ownership of them, and they'll sort out whether it's genuine or not later on. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you would think it could only happen in America, right? Well, no. So, this claim, and incidentally, this discovery has been the feature of a number of documentaries. You may have seen them on PBS or Discovery Channel or whatever. <clears throat> it's been quite famous and spectacular at all the claims that have been made about this box. But the conclusion of a number of archaeological experts is that the box is a, is a hoax. It is a fraud. But it is conceivable that what has been determined to be a fraud may turn out to be, you know, a genuine article. So we'll leave that question to the ages and to the experts, quote, unquote. And we'll say we have an interesting reflection on James, the brother of our Lord. In fact, we may have his bone box, or we may have a well, a well constructed uh, deceit, a fraud or a hoax. The jury is still out, pun intended, because those trials in Israel were jury trials. <laughs> All right. Any questions about that? Then to the second page of your outline. This James, that is James the brother of Jesus, is also known as James the Just. And he is the author of... Jude. Not Jude. He is the author of... The Epistle of James, correct. <clears throat> so, written before his own death in 62 A.D., which is interesting. <clears throat> that is, it gives us a terminus ad quem. That is, his epistle could not have been written after 62 A.D. So it was written before 62 A.D., sometime between probably the meeting of the Council of Jerusalem, which was probably yet in the 30s or early 40s A.D., 
and 62. In the middle of the century, more or less. Why is that important? Well, because we have a document that comes from very close, actually from within the apostolic era, very close to the living memory of what Jesus had done and said, what the apostles recorded, what the apostles preached, etc., etc. This is extremely important for answering liberals who, a hundred years ago, believed that the epistle of James was written in the second century by somebody who was not James, the brother of Jesus, but who was imitating his name for purposes of gaining attention. In other words, he was a liar, but that's all right. You, you, you know it's okay to lie, right, if you, get, if you get something out of it, if it advances your agenda. Well, you would say not biblically. Well, I hope we would say that. <laughs> but at any rate, it's not the first time in history that somebody has been accused of lying for ulterior motives who, in fact, was telling the truth. Okay. Now, there is another James. <clears throat> he is listed twice in the New Testament, the passage of there, Matthew 10 and Acts 1. Who is he? <clears throat> well, let's take a look at Matthew 10, verse 3. And once again, read that out, whoever gets to it first. <coughs> Matthew 10, verse 3. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and... Thaddeus. There's Thaddeus, whom we identified as a potential other Judas. All right, so James, the son of Alphaeus, who in Mark 15, verse 40, if you turn forward to that, Mark 15, verse 40, there are some also looking on from afar. This is at the foot of the cross among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. All right, so this is James the Less, James the son of Alphaeus, which leaves our Judas to be Judah ben Yosef ben Miriam. Judah or Judas, son of Joseph, son of Mary. David? Um, you said there's, the liberals are saying it wasn't written until the uh, second century. Um, <coughs> but I assume that many centuries before it was settled that it was part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, but it seems to me like this debate has... Yes, he did. He did because it didn't measure up to his canon of justification by faith alone, particularly when James was talking about justification by works. Now, of course, James quotes the very same passage that Paul quotes from the book of Genesis to defend justification by faith alone. But nonetheless... When I say a hundred years ago, I'm talking about the end of the 19th century, when a complete reconstruction of the canon was under view. And it didn't make any difference what the historical view of the canon was. These scholars like Harnack and and others simply ignored it because they had a reconstructive view of the evolution of the New Testament documents. 
<clears throat> they didn't believe the Gospel of John was written until about 190 A.D., over 100 years after we believe and we know that John wrote it. So uh, this is not the liberal view these days, okay? The only thing that survives of that liberal view these days is that they don't believe James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it. In other words, they do believe in the pseudonymity of the epistle. That's also an issue here with the epistle of Jude. So the, the liberals today do believe that the epistle of James comes from the first century. But they do not believe that Jesus' brother wrote it. Somebody did borrow his name and is using it to gain a particular hearing. All right, now, to an interesting note here, particularly for those of us who are Calvinists and follow John Calvin, we recognize that Calvin is not infallible because here's an instance in which we can demonstrate that he is, in fact, in error. Calvin thought that our author was Judas of James in Luke 6.16. Now, Judas of James is a literal translation of the Greek text there in Luke 6.16. But it does not mean brother of James, as Calvin supposed. Rather, it means son of James. So Judas of James means Judas, son of James not Judas, brother of James, as all modern translations indicate. Now, how do we know that this is the case? Well, if you look at the literal reading in the Greek text of Matthew 6, Mark 6, 17, James of Zebedee does not mean that James is the brother of Zebedee. None of us would read it that way, and in fact, no translation does. It is James, the son of Zebedee. So by parallel reasoning, this is Judas, the son of James, in terms of that Greek style. It does not mean Judas, the brother of James. And so we chalk up one error to John Calvin and are confident that when we make mistakes, Calvin has preceded us. All right. Even great theologians make basic mistakes. All right, so now we've, we've had a uh, rundown of Judas and particularly the interface of Judas with the name of the disciple James. And we might remind ourselves of that apostolic band, uh, band uh, from which you may remember in your vacation Bible school days, this is how the disciples run. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew next, and Thomas too, Philip and Bartholomew, James the less, and Judas the greater, Simon the zealot, and Judas the traitor. I still remember it from my vacation Bible school days. And I can remember the man that stood up and taught it to us, Reverend Leach. Boy, could he sing, which is one of the reasons they brought him to vacation Bible school. We actually had a little song about this is how the disciples run. Okay. What does the New Testament tell us about the Judas or Jude, who is the author of our epistle? Now we need to look in a kind of sword drill fashion through the New Testament. So let's begin with Matthew 13, 55. I'm going to wait till everybody gets there, so I want everybody to have their eye on the text. And when you get to Matthew 13, 55, I want you to hold your finger there 
Now, I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. So let's keep our fingers between those two passages. We will flip back and forth between the two of them. Mark 6, verse 3. And Loretta, if you have Matthew 13, 55, would you read it out for us, please? All right, now keep your finger there, and let's turn over to Mark chapter 6, verse 3. And Susan, can I have you read out Mark 6, 3 for us? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. All right, now I want you to tell me what's the difference in the two passages. As you look at Matthew 13:55, and you then look over at Mark chapter 6, verse 3, what's the difference? One says the sisters. The sisters are included in Mark. They are not included in Matthew. That's one obvious difference. Okay? Must mean that Matthew was a chauvinist, right? I don't think so. But at any rate. One is the carpenter's son, the other is the carpenter. Okay, that is an incidental difference, but it's not a big difference. Okay? There is a big difference here beyond the fact that the sisters are listed or at least are indicated as a group. One is a question. No, that's not it. It's the order, isn't it? Okay. Okay. All right. Now, what do you notice about the order? Scott? The last two are flip-flop. In Matthew, who's last? In Matthew, who's last? Judas is last, or Jude is last, which would suggest what? Youngest. He's the youngest. In Mark, where is he? He's next to the last, which would suggest he's next to the youngest. <laughs> so the difference in order doesn't help us decide definitively whether he is the baby boy or whether he's the next youngest baby boy. What if they were twins? Pardon? They could have been twins. Uh, I don't think so, but nonetheless, I, it's a remote possibility. Okay. The fact that they're separated and not listed, shall we say, you know, <laughs> like Jacob and Esau <laughs> indicates to me, I don't think they're twins. But that, that's my own opinion. All right, so... The order is varied, but it, and it raises an interesting issue as to why Matthew would place him last, indicating he may be the youngest, and why Mark would reverse that, indicating that he were not, he was still the youngest, but he puts him next to the last, okay? No, it could be because Mark regards him as more prominent than Simon, than the last one, okay? So, uh, you know, these are these are kind of intriguing questions, which we can't solve ultimately because we don't have any other information. However, we do know that he is a younger brother of Jesus. He may be the youngest brother of Jesus. That's what these two passages tell us. All right now, let's take a look at Mark three twenty one. 
So we'll go back from Mark chapter 6 to verse 21 of chapter 3. And once again, I'll wait until everybody gets there because I want all of our eyes to be upon that passage when we read it out. Mark 3.21. And Lisa, may I ask you to read out? Could you say your last uh, phrase louder, Lisa? He is out of his mind. Does anybody have anything different in their version? Go ahead, Pam. Beside himself. He is beside himself. Anything else? He has lost his senses. Okay. In other words, what were they saying about him? He's crazy. He's he's delusional. Well, maybe he's he's mad. He's mad. He's touched with insanity. All right, now notice this charge, uh, his brothers lodge against him. For his brothers are in that crowd, okay, and consequently it is possible that Jude was in that group. Now to John chapter 7. We know from Mark 3 that Jesus' brothers thought he was out of his mind. What do we learn from John chapter 7, verse 5? Okay, do you have it? Please. His brothers didn't believe in him. They not only think that he's beside himself, out of his mind, but they do not believe in him. Now, let's step back for a moment. Let's ask ourselves, does our epistle suggest the same attitude toward Jesus that John 7 verse 5 suggests? And you say, David? No, it does not. All right, so something has changed, hasn't it? Okay? If Jude in John 7 is not believing on him, and he writes an epistle in which he adores him, okay, then something obviously has changed. When did that happen? At the, at the ascension. Okay, if he was at the ascension, he would have to have been, he would have to have been aware of the resurrection, correct? Okay, if he is aware of the resurrection, he would have to have been aware of the crucifixion, correct? All right. So in other words, something has happened. Let's pinpoint the resurrection. But the resurrection implies the previous act of crucifixion, okay? So that we can say that the pivot point 
in Jude's belief is at least at the resurrection appearance of Jesus. Because a dead Messiah won't make it in Judaism or in Christianity. And of course, the Jews believe that Jesus Messiah, Yeshua Mashiach, is still dead. Okay? His bones are somewhere hidden in Palestine. All right. But a resurrected Yeshua Mashiach is, that's the real thing. So Jude has become convicted that his brother was the real thing, at least by the resurrection. The resurrection would cast a whole new light upon his death, upon his previous ministry, upon what he taught about the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. That would change everything so that he would be present at the ascension. And we'll see when we look at Acts chapter 1, he's present somewhere else as well. Now, when you read my uh, article on narrative echoes, the words of Jesus in his brother's epistle, I'm suggesting that this transformation may have occurred before the crucifixion. Now, I grant you that it is a suggestion on my part, and it's speculative. So, it does not have the weight of any other person that I know has written a commentary. That means that it's peculiarly original with me, and you know I have all kinds of weird ideas, and therefore my wife particularly knows that. And, and therefore, it's not necessarily the law of the Medes and the Persians. I'm not claiming that. All right. I'm not claiming any bill of infallibility for my speculation or my suggestion, and I'm admitting it's a speculation. But let me go back to that story in John 7, where we discovered that John records the fact that the brothers of Jesus did not believe him. We have an intriguing drama that unfolds towards the end of that chapter. John 7 is the record of Jesus going up to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Feast of Tabernacles is the most celebratory of the Jewish feast because it's the autumn harvest festival. Gathering in of the last fruits, the fruits of the final summer harvest. It's a great time of celebration. We're celebrated by seven days living out of doors in little temporary lean-tos called tabernacles. And Jesus goes up to tabernacles after he says he's not going to go up to tabernacles. Now, why does John note that? Well, because when Jesus said he wasn't going to go up to tabernacles, his brothers said they were going to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they didn't believe on him. But Jesus then changes his mind and does go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. In other words, Jesus agrees to go into the space where his unbelieving brothers have gone. Jesus' alteration of his narrative odyssey in that chapter is suggestive to me. Is it possible that Jesus changes locations as his brothers change disposition and attitude? Is it possible 
that in going up to the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and then dropping out the pericope adultery, which is not authentic, the very next statement is, I am the light of the world, which is exactly what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. It's about the light ceremony in the court of the temple, and it's about the carrying of the water from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple every day. And Jesus is saying, this is me. Now, his brothers were there to hear that because they went up into that space. Jesus, changing his motif, is he also effectually changing the attitude of his disciples by proclaiming himself the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles? And when he proclaims himself the fulfillment of it, he says, it's over. I am his reality. You can't get any more of it than I am. So be content with me. All right, that's my suggestion. You take it for what it's worth. It didn't cost you anything. It's free. No charge. All right, but it is a conjecture. It is a speculation on the basis of narrative space and narrative uh, exchange, narrative dialogue. Well... In Acts chapter 1, we turn to that passage, verses 13 and 14, we pick up on what Robert said about Jude being present at the ascension. When all of us have it, then let's have it read out, verses 13 and 14 of the first chapter of Acts. Are we all there? Okay. Ben, would you read it out? And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These always one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And with his brothers. We know that he had these four brothers. And they are there. After the ascension of Christ, they are in the upper room where Jesus appeared to his disciples numerous times after his resurrection. Consequently, we know that Jude is amongst that company of believers who are in that upper room devoting themselves to prayer. Notice, prayerful devotion. Asking for what is going to happen in the next chapter, namely the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Seeking the guidance and additional illumination and instruction of God the Holy Spirit on the basis of the risen Christ finished ministry and his session at the right hand of glory on high. Now, this means very clearly that Jude and his brothers are no longer thinking that Jesus is out of his mind. They're no longer not believing on him. They are, in fact, believing disciples. Now, they're not believing apostles. They're believing disciples. Okay? It is conceivable that they did see the risen Christ. I don't have my doubt that they probably did. But that doesn't qualify them necessarily as apostles. All right, so we now have Jude, the writer of our epistle, 
in the company of the faithful. He is a believer in his brother. He is a believer that his brother is more than a brother. He is, in fact, the Son of God and the Lord of glory. And in that confidence, he waits for God's next move. He waits for the Holy Spirit's next move. And what is that next move? Well, we catch a reflection of it in 1 Corinthians 9.5. So let's turn to that passage before we go to our break. And let's ask ourselves, what do we learn about our Jude from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5? Are we all there? Cheryl, do you have it? No, I you don't. Okay. <clears throat> Who has it? Go ahead, Nancy. Have we not power to be about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? And Cephas. Okay, who is Cephas, incidentally? Peter. <clears throat> All right. So, now, uh, there is a variant translation of this verse. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Take along a believing wife where? What was Paul doing? Scott? On his missionary journeys, correct. Along with the brothers of our Lord, which suggests that Jude was an early Christian missionary. Now, we do know from early church tradition that Jude was allegedly one of the evangelists in Galilee. That would make sense because he lived there. Nazareth is in Galilee. And they established churches in Galilee in the first century. Now that tradition comes from Eusebius of Caesarea, but it's also duplicated by some others. But Paul lumps him in to his missionary effort. That would suggest that Jude, or the brothers of our Lord, went beyond their home region, namely Galilee. That would suggest that they may have gone as far as Antioch of Syria, another country north of Galilee, and what's north of Antioch of Syria? Paul's missionary journeys to to Turkey, to Asia Minor, to modern-day Turkey. Correct. All right, so we can't prove it, but the fact that Paul associates the brothers of Jesus with his own missionary effort may indicate that they, in fact, accompanied him beyond Galilee, even beyond Antioch, into Asia Minor. So that Jude is aware of international Christian communities. Ah, is it conceivable that one of those international Christian communities is the community that is receiving this epistle that he writes? And if so, are there any indications inside the epistle 
that it belongs to a community outside of Galilee, outside of Nazareth, for instance? Does it belong to a community which is Gentile? Hmm, interesting questions. All right. This much of the data from the New Testament that tells us the narrative story of the life of Jude. And after our break, we'll come back and take a look at a broader paradigm about that narrative story. So, you have time to get some refreshments. And we'll reconvene in five minutes or more. Now we want to take a, shall we say, broader point of view or broader perspective with respect to this narrative paradigm that I am suggesting. We have the details in the article that is in your handout. But let's take a look at um, what I'm after here. Uh, At the end of the article, I suggest that I'm trying to put some meat on the skeleton of the Epistle of Jude. That is, I'm trying to uh, penetrate into what is the drama behind the Epistle. Obviously, there is a story behind the Epistle. There's the story of a life behind the Epistle. It's the life of the brother of Jesus, Jude, the writer of the letter. So let's think a little bit about that life story. So I'm going to propose a narrative paradigm, and I'll begin with what a biographical narrative paradigm would be for any human being. Where would a biographical narrative paradigm begin? With what event would it begin? With birth. Now, in a Christian narrative paradigm, what would be the next significant event for the Christian biography? No. Nope. Rebirth. That's correct. Rebirth. All right, now, okay, I'm not ignoring baptism in terms of the order of infant baptism, but it is, of course, a symbol of the rebirth, so it's implicit in the baptismal rite. But we move in the Christian narrative paradigm from birth to rebirth. Did that happen to Jude? Jude moved from birth to rebirth. Yes, he did. We noted that with his presence in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, realizing that that change, that is that regeneration of his heart, may have occurred as a result of the resurrection, or it may have occurred even back earlier at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. But nonetheless, we are assured that it occurred because it is the narrative paradigm of a genuine Christian believer. Jude is a genuine Christian believer. Now, what about Christ? I'm going to use the X symbol for Christ here. What about Christ? Does he have a narrative paradigm? No. 
He doesn't. Wasn't he born? Yes, he was born, correct? Born in Bethlehem of Judea. Was he reborn? No. Resurrection. Hmm. Are you saying, Bob, that resurrection is Christ's rebirth? I'm saying it's like that. Okay. Let's take a look at 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Now, this is important, so I want everybody to be on the same page. 1 Peter 1, 3. You follow along as I read from the New American Standard. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice what the Apostle Peter says. Being born again or rebirth is attached to the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Well, why would we say that? Why would Peter say that? It's obviously a transition from death to life, isn't it? From spiritual death to spiritual life. And Jesus' transition from physical death to physical life by way of his resurrection is indeed indicative of a transition in his own history, his own story, his own narrative biography. Because Jesus needed to be reborn, didn't he? He needed to be reborn by resurrection. He needed to be regenerated from the death that came to him by crucifixion. He had taken upon himself the curse of sin, though he himself was not personally a sinner. Nonetheless, vicariously, he bore it. And having borne it, he was subject to it. He was dominated by it for three days. He placed himself under that curse, dying in sin. He had to be regenerated. He had to be born again. He had to be declared not under that curse. He had to be transferred from the realm of death to the realm of of resurrection life. So, the history of Jesus is a duplicate paradigm of the history of a Christian. In fact, we'll say that the history of Jesus sets the paradigm for the par- for the biography for the narrative biography of the believer. It is because of Jesus regeneration. It is because of Jesus rebirth that you may be born again. It is not because you have a light in the sky. It is not because you walk forward and put your name on a decision card. It is not because of any personal experience in you, per se. It is because of something that happened in history. Regeneration occurred in space and time, and it occurred once and for all definitively in the Son of God, who submitted himself to the curse of being unborn in order to be reborn. 
unborn by death and the curse of sin, which is death, and reborn by resurrection from the dead. Which means that your regeneration is anchored in Christ. When Christ was born again, so were you. When Christ was born again by resurrection, so were you. Paul tells you that. You have been raised up together with him. In other words, because you belong to him, you have been raised up with him as he was raised up. So the narrative paradigm which belongs to Jude is a paradigm which first belonged to his brother. It is a paradigm which has been lived out in history. It's been lived out in time and space. And Jude, Jude is brought into union with it. He is brought into a relationship with Christ by rebirth, by regeneration. So that Jude is in Christ and Christ is in Jude. This is a relationship of intimate fellowship as well as salvation, redemption, and justification. It is a closed circle. Jude in Christ, Christ in Jude. I in you, you in me. This is a closed narrative circle. This is a closed narrative biography. So that when Jude sits down to write his epistle, he is writing out of the closed circle of his relationship with his Lord, his Lord brother, his son of God brother. The intimacy of his relationship with Christ is reflected in the letter that he writes. Behind his language is the language of his older brother. He borrows, he, re, he mirrors, he reflects the language of his brother in specific parts of his epistles because he is in union with his brother. He believes what his brother taught. He believes what his brother did. And he even uses the vocabulary of his brother at parts in order to make that clear. This closed circle leaves outside of its boundary everything that is the antithesis of that intimate inner union. Well, what would be outside of that closed circle? What would be outside of this circle of intimacy between Jude and his brother Jesus? Let's take a look at the epistle. What would be outside of the circle of union with Christ between Jude and his brother? The intimacy of redemption and salvation that is there between Jude and Christ, Christ and Jude. Outside of that circle would be, verse 4, condemnation. There is no condemnation inside that circle, is there? Inside that circle of union with Christ, Christ in me. Me and Christ, there is no condemnation. Outside of that circle, verse 5, destruction. Destruction. Outside of that circle, verse 6, eternal darkness and 
judgment. Inside of this circle, no darkness, but the light of the world. Inside of that circle, no eternal judgment, eternal justification. Outside of that circle, verse 7, eternal fire. Inside of that that circle, eternal bliss. No pain, no suffering, no torment evermore. And finally, outside of that circle, verse 13, black darkness reserved forever. Inside this narrative paradigm circle of the biography of Christ and those who are in Christ, the biography of a birth and rebirth inside that circle, eternal and everlasting light and life. The antitheses in this epistle about the outer and inner circle, the inner circle of union and communion with Christ, the outer circle of alienation and separation from him will jump out at you. It is there because Jude experiences that union with Christ that removes him from the curse, removes him from condemnation, removes him from the sentence of of damnation and destruction, removes him from eternal fire and everlasting darkness. He rejoices and relishes in this inner circle union relationship with his elder brother because that is the circle of salvation and everlasting life through the Son of God. Now, this inner circle is itself distinctive. It has its own qualities and characteristics. It is not just an inner circle of union, a union of birth and rebirth, a union of being conformed unto Christ, being conformed unto his death and resurrection. It is not just that. It is, in fact, in verse 1, a relationship of being a bondservant of Christ. It is a circle of being beloved of God the Father. It is a circle of being kept for Christ Jesus. And in verse 2, it is a circle of mercy, peace, and love being amplified, being expanded in its superabundance to you. This inner circle of relationship with Jesus is not the circle of a piker's gift. This is a circle of the gift of Almighty God, of eternal mercy, eternal peace, eternal love. It's being multiplied to you. Now live it. Live it with joy even in the face of suffering and persecution. Live it, because this is what the first century church lived. On we can go. This inner circle is a circle, verse 3, of common salvation. It is not just peculiar to you as a rugged American individualist Protestant Christian. 
It is a circle of communion with those who share that. So then, why don't you share it verbally, personally, and in terms of your very existence? Why do you withdraw from sharing that? Why do you withdraw from the communion of the saints? Why do you treat the worship hour as a routine and not a time of communion in Christ? In Christ! Because that's what the first century church did. Notice also this inner circle is a circle of those who are in verse 4, recipients of the grace of God. Do you not treasure the grace of God? Do you not treasure the gift that you could never earn? Do you not rejoice in the favor that's been bestowed upon you that you could never merit? Do you not bristle when you hear somebody talking about merit in the covenant of grace? Don't you bristle at that? Or do you just let it pass by and sail over your head because the people that are talking about it have PhDs and they teach in theological seminaries? Huh? Merit in the face of grace? They don't compute. They don't mix. That's oil and water. You can't put them together. It won't work. Sooner or later, sooner or later, it will show its rotten fruit. Recipients of the grace of Christ in verse 4, this inner circle, also in verse 9, are possessors of the Holy Spirit. You are not devoid of the Spirit. You possess the Spirit. It belongs to you and you belong to it. It has come to fill you up with the fullness of its joy in Christ. Therefore you pray. Notice verse 20. Therefore you have eternal life. Verse 21. Therefore you are kept from stumbling. Verse 24. Therefore you stand blameless before the throne of glory. In the presence of the glory throne of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you stand blameless. The court has already acquitted you. You've been declared not Guilty forever. Now, if that doesn't make you fall on your face and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, like Martin Luther did, I don't know what I can do to encourage you to fall on your face and thank God. Because, of course, you know that that's what released him from the bondage of his slavery to a Roman Catholic system. It broke it because he knew he stood blameless before God. He didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to do penances and pilgrimages to get it. Christ had done it. All he knew to do was to lay hold of it. And the great judge of the assize of eternity said, In my son, you are blameless Martin Luther. Because I can't see you, Luther. All I can see is my son wrapping his arms and his righteousness robes around you. And so when I look on my son, I can't condemn him. I can't go hold him blameworthy. He is innocent. He is justified by resurrection. And you are hidden in him. You are hidden with Christ in him. 
and therefore blameless before my throne of glory with great joy. This is what's behind this epistle. This is the enriched brilliance of this epistle. Most people will read this as a dull, doctrinal, gloom and doom tract. Don't read it that way. From this night on, you have no excuse to read it that way. You don't have to read my whole article. I'm not promoting my article. It's there for your edification if you wish to work your way through it. But the point of the article is what I have just indicated. The epistle itself declares to you a narrative paradigm of being united to Christ within the closed circle of this rich grace, mercy, peace, life, joy, blameless standing, filled with the Holy Spirit, constant in prayer, etc., etc., etc. Origin was right. You notice my little quotation from Origin at the top of the article? An epistle full of flowing words of heavenly grace. I trust that as we work our way through it, you will find that grace enriched to your own soul and to your own life. To that end, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of the grace of Christ, for the wonderful life of his story, which takes our own history into union with himself in order to transform it, to take the life of our history, which is death and a curse, and to transform it by life and everlasting justification. All this through his resurrection from the dead to demonstrate that he is indeed the Son of God in power. We bless you for him as we bless you for your spirit, as we bless you for that spirit inspiring Jude with this letter. And we pray that as we look at it, you will help us to love it, even as we understand you through it and your Son, Jesus Christ, through it and your Holy Spirit through it more and more and more to your glory. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.